Hi, I'm Bob Witte with KPND in Sandpoint, Idaho. If I can be a fan of Skylight Books, LA's world-famous independent bookstore, from way up here in the Idaho Panhandle, then you can too from wherever you are. Visit the website, buy some books. You can even join their membership club and reap the benefits of supporting independent booksellers. Thanks. softer side meet me on the softer side softer side of your heart hi there and welcome to the skylight books author reading series you can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online you can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. So, now to introduce the event is your very own Neri Pirion. Hi everyone, whoa. <laughs> um, thanks so much for coming. I love seeing a, a packed house. Um, so I'm Nairi. I am the co-coordinator co of the Master of Professional Writing Faculty and Student Reading Series. So welcome to the first event of the year. Um, it's exciting to kick off at Skylight. They're always so supportive of us and we love being here. I love this tree. Had <laughs> some nice ambiance. Um, I'd love to introduce Karen Tate. She is going to help me out this year. Karen's in her second year. I'm almost done, so she'll take over after me. Um, thank you to Damon for filming the event. Um, we have a, a MPW YouTube page, so look out for the video, um, and we'll let you know when that's up. Um, like Joe said, you know, or sorry, like Dan said, <laughs> um, silence the cell phones. There's snacks over here, and then the restrooms are back there. Karen. Okay. Um, our inspiration for this year's theme was Mad Libs. So we incorporated Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking and came up with the Year of Mad Lib Thinking. <laughs> so each month we've chosen titles and quotes from a few famous writers to have some fun with. And tonight we are featuring one of the people we're featuring, William Faulkner, and he was born September 25th, 1897. His southern gothic masterpiece, As I Lay Dying, we have turned into As I Lay, fill in the blank. And Faulkner once claimed that he hadn't done any rewrites on this text, but our writers may have some other ideas. Um, our other featured writer is Truman Capote, who was born September 30th, 1924. His classic Breakfast at Tiffany's is the template for Breakfast at Fill in the Blank. Um, and Capote once said, I don't care what anybody says about me as long as it's not true. So 
So our five student readers and special faculty reader, Dinah Lenny, all have all finished these Mad Libs in their own mad way, and we look forward to hearing what they have to say. I accidentally rhymed that, I'm so sorry. Let's get started with um, Charlie Brown. Charlie is in his first year with a fiction concentration. If he could rewrite one life event, he would have entered the MPW program in 1997 when he was first accepted. Some people seem to believe Charlie is a troublemaker when that can't possibly be correct. And you may not know that Charlie didn't meet another Charlie Brown until 1999, and then he met 50 all at once at Knott's Berry Farm. Charlie Brown. <laughs> Um, I'm the reason that we're late tonight. So uh, we are on New Orleans time uh, tonight. Yeah. So, um, and I just want to say I specifically asked to be a part of this one, uh, this reading, be specifically because uh, Skylight is by far my favorite bookstore in Los Angeles. Period. I've bought many books here, and in fact. Uh, and in fact, I bought, the, I bought the magazine that would eventually become my second fiction sale in this, in this uh, it was a local magazine, no longer in existence, but I did buy it here and uh, from that discovered a new market and added to my resume. So thank you, Skylight, as always. Um, let's, uh, let's get to this. Uh, uh, this is a short story. Fairly new, out of the box for me, and I want to dedicate it to my wife, Paula, without whom this would never have been written. <laughs> and it's called, It's Only a Date. Marie had set us up, saying the two of us would get along great. I put that in quotes because I don't get along great with anybody. When I told her that, she said, Tantan doesn't either, therefore. Therefore what? She left these cliffs in her conversations all the time, to the point where I had nicknamed her Dover. Therefore, you two are perfect for each other. Here's the thing about Marie. She lies. Not in an insidious out-to-get-you way, because she had no ambitions beyond collecting her check and getting the hell home. No, this was just a game to amuse yourself by catching someone else in enthusiasm. Marie didn't do enthusiasm. That's a lot of expectations. I didn't do expectations. I have them, but I didn't want anyone to expect something of me in this world. Disappointing people has long been one of my leading characteristics. It's only a date. Marie smiled at me. It was unnerving. Relax, Skippy. She called everyone Skippy, especially when she put them in their place. Well, it had been a long time, so I said yes, and the requisite information passed. When I say that it had been a long time, I don't mean sex. Well, I do mean sex, because the latest drought had been a lot longer than what's healthy, and would only add to the high-wire awkwardness of taking a female on a date, blind or otherwise. What I mean is that it had been a long time since I had taken someone out on a date. One of those get dressed in your best, make reservations, pretend you know something about wine and food, 
food outings, that devolves into the worst combination of autobiography and job interview. <laughs> I apply to be someone who you want to see over and over again, hopefully naked at some point in time in the future, because I have the following qualifications. I have many likes and hobbies that you are somewhat interested in. I consume media you find entertaining. I am not too hung up on either of my parents. And I have not pissed off a former lover to the point of stalking and or restraining order. This last one is a real concern because of the crucial part of the application, chosen career. Because I am a lawyer, regardless of whether I like it or not. Maybe it's because I live in New Orleans, a place where casual gatherings and late night bar revelry means that a lot of people you meet are part of a group. A gathering pulls up to the bar, one of the herd, a maverick perhaps, or maybe the stallion, breaks off to engage with a member of another herd. Maybe there is co-mingling, a move to the dance floor, the drinks flow with alcohol pours three to four times bigger than normal Midwestern cities, and then you find yourself in the backseat of a car in a dark place, semi-nude and sweaty. Don't make this out to be facile, because some of my longest relationships started just this way. You can find real love on this track, and I have, but this version of the mating dance doesn't always require that knock on the door, here I am moment of a date. Sometimes you skip right to a relationship, and I'm perfectly happy with that. This particular point, where I stand on the porch of Tantan's house, doesn't particularly thrill me. We talked earlier that week, one day after Marie had emailed me her number. She spoke in a halting way, the Saigon of her youth still inhabiting her tongue, despite 20 years of living here. She laughed at a few jokes about Marie and made a few of her own. It turns out that she loved food above all things, and we made plans to go to one of the many tapas restaurants that had sprouted on the scene in the last few years. She gave me her address, which was out in eastern New Orleans, where many Vietnamese immigrants settled in the 1980s. Don't worry if my mom answers the door, she said, and then hung up. <laughs> yeah, don't think of an elephant either. The house wasn't like mine. Most of the developments out beyond the Ninth Ward came in the 60s and 70s. Instead of the classic New Orleans Victorians or Creole cottages, they threw up ranch houses because they were cheap and have a, have a relative facade of sturdiness. Now all of them had a shabbiness that comes with planned obsolescence. I looked in the curtained front window, making for a perfect mirror. That's the best I can do, I thought, and rang the bell. Tantan answered, I had seen a picture on Marie's phone and knew she was attractive. Her deep onyx hair hung to the middle of her back and she wore a simple dress with an empire waist that showed off how thin she was. Before I could say anything, she looked at me from head to toe. Marie didn't say you were short. <laughs> she was wearing three inch heels and still didn't come up to my neck. I'm average height for a man. I instinctively drew myself out of my usual slouch that comes from carrying weight in the belly. I knew I wasn't six foot, but I was close to double digits in the fives. <laughs> Do you always settle for average? She said it with a smile on her face, but I briefly entered a reverie. Waves of memory crashed on my consciousness as I heard those words. It was the same tone of voice of every teacher who said, he doesn't apply himself. It echoed like the school counselors who told me, you should have at least three safety schools. And of course, it was the sound of my mother when she said, right in the middle of your law school class, you could have done better. But I shook it off and smiled. 
You don't settle for height. It's what you have in your genes. You don't look at a yellow rose and say, really? Didn't you even try to be red? That's what you're given. Case closed. Is this one of your comedy routines? I took a sharp intake of breath. Marie had told her my secret, something I didn't share with my coworkers or even my family, something deep within me that I cannot release. I spend my nights alone rewatching classic routines and HBO specials to find out what makes a joke work. I constantly hunt for one-liners for, for one and hone down everything I say to five minutes, the average open mic time. I even look upon my oral arguments as a chance to practice timing. My name is David and I am addicted to comedy. And so I turn to Tauntaun, opening my mouth and raising my finger, but she stops me in this classic Daffy Duck pose, cutting me off. I'm hungry. Let's go. She walked past me to my car, no chance for repost or clarification. Off to a quick start, the disappointment train left the station. <laughs> the drive from her house to the restaurant would take about 30 minutes. We were headed uptown to Magazine Street, which had evolved from a funky alternative to Swanky Road St. Charles Avenue to a sleek row of boutiques and bars that catered to the striving middle class. Few neighborhoods see much change in this town, but Magazine had been almost completely reinvented since the mid-90s. I liked it there because there were some great new restaurants, but many of my old hangouts from college were long gone. As we hit the on-ramp for the I-10, she turned to me with a questioning face. What is this? Her tone was flat, so she could have meant a number of existential conditions. Was this a postmodern examination of the courting process? Did she already feel disappointed with how I looked and wanted to turn back? Then she pointed to the radio. Ah! Clinging to old technology, I had arranged my five CD changer to fuel the different stages of a date. <laughs> the hardest part was the initial disc. For later on, you could have cool jazz to set a romantic tone, or maybe an Al Green or Isaac Hayes album as a just-in-case if you achieve a makeout session. The middle would be an up-tempo rocker, a Springsteen or indie darling, depending on the person you're with. But the first impression froze me. After going back and forth between a Muddy Waters disc, possibly too obscure, and Graham Parsons' best of collections, people who hate country, really hate country, I settled on Little Feet, Dixie Chicken in particular. Rocking, good time, sing-along blues rock is a great introduction to who I am. So I told her, a bit let down that she didn't know the greatness that was Lowell George. I don't like music, she said, <laughs> and looked out toward the road. You don't like this? I'll change it. No, I don't like music. I only listen to talk. I know I must have made a weird face because she laughed at me. What's wrong? What you said. <laughs> I'll let that sink in. You might as well have told me that you don't like air. That water is too wet for you. Heartbeats should be outlawed because they make blood move too fast. Come on. She laughed at this, a babbling book, brook giggle that overwhelmed the musical tones coming from the stereo. You funny, she said, and she ran both of her hands through her hair. Never before had I gotten such a laugh, and never before had I been so serious. 
We managed to make it to the restaurant without me bearing any more of my soul for her eternal amusement. Parking was around the corner on the street and the fetid summer air hadn't cooled enough for a table on the patio. We sat at a solid, dark-stained oak table and the tile floor combined with cranked air conditioning to help cool my brow that was moist from the two-block walk. When the waiter asked for our drink orders, I ordered a whiskey on the rocks. She got water. Flat water. Let me guess, you don't like bubbles. I drink soda, she said laughing. I don't like alcohol, except maybe a glass of wine sometimes. Champagne at a wedding. I tried to think of a weekend in the past two years that didn't find me drunk at least two nights of the week. I failed. But I shrugged. You don't mind sharing, right? I looked at her over the very tall menu. She shook her head no, but something about me had captured her attention. What are, what are you looking at? Your hands. They're huge. It's true. I have big meaty palms that flower from my wrist. I can cover my face in embarrassment with one hand instead of the customary two. <laughs> I have played catcher on every baseball or softball team I joined. She held out her own hand to make a comparison. Come on, let me see. This is usually a moment fraught with tension and tenderness. Touching someone for the first time outside of a handshake finally establishes an intimacy which could lead to something beautiful. But I could feel this leading to disaster. I opened my palm to her and she flattened her palm to mine. My addled brain exaggerated it so that it felt like I was high-fiving a Barbie doll. Tauntaun looked at me in the eye and smiled. You can't touch me with those hands. Too scary. <laughs> well, there goes that plan for the evening. <laughs> I hope the dining car on the Disappointment Express was good. As the first plates came out, she still hadn't eased off the hands question. My hands aren't that small. She held them in front of her. I bet I could choke you. <laughs> I was shocked at this smiling face saying such words to me. I laughed like a cornered rat. What do you mean? They're big enough to choke you. I bet I could do it. What are you, some sort of ninja or something? Silly, that's Japanese, not Vietnamese. She looked down and put some Serrano ham on a piece of bread. Yeah, the Vietnamese never killed anyone, I said. But I mumbled it and she didn't hear me. I quickly changed the subject from cold-blooded murder to what exactly she did this day. She told me about her younger brother's search for a new car. She went along, ever the accountant, to make sure he got the best deal. According to her, they went from lot to lot because none of the current vehicular offerings measured up, especially a sedan that seemed high on his list. It didn't have a trunk release. She said this in such a way that I should agree with her. Well, I guess it would be good to get the truck, trunk open without the key. I felt like I was swimming in the deep end of the pool blindfolded, but I had certainly never had this conversation before in my life. No, the trunk had a remote open button. It didn't have a pull release from inside. Oh, a what now? Cars today have a lever to pull on the inside if someone gets trapped in the trunk. And this one didn't. I said it matter-of-factly, even if I didn't have a goddamn clue what we were talking about. No, so I told my brother he shouldn't buy it. That's a key feature to the car he should buy. No one should be trapped in there. Not when you can have the pull. It occurred to me then that her life was either way more exciting than mine, or, and here I might lay down a bet, her fantasy life was filled with rich, loamy soil. 
But I, can't, I couldn't let it go at that. Did he want the car? Oh yeah, that was his first choice. She said this as if he were stupid. But you talked him out of it. I'm the oldest. Cultural differences come in many flavors, but family car choice belonging to the oldest child struck me as odd. So what car is he going to buy? I haven't made up my mind yet. It'll be something good for him. Tonight I learned that cars can sometimes be like spinach. I chose to let another subject fall away like autumn leaves. I was sure there were many other subjects to pursue where both parties could contribute equally, or at least something that didn't seem out of a crime novel. Those, uh, those things amounted to a tally in which all of her family made poor choices and would be much happier if they only listened to her. While she was demanding and decisive, usually along rather odd criteria, she didn't seem angry or unhappy. In fact, she was quite pleasant and we laughed about many things. And for someone who was highly opinionated, she actually listened to me. At some time during these kinds of nights, if I feel like I have nothing left to say, I will trot out my act. It's something I have memorized and can use quickly to keep any dullness out of the date. If I can woo them, I, can make, I will make them laugh. If I can't woo them, I will make them laugh. But that didn't matter tonight. She smiled and kept her eyes on mine. She laughed appropriately and even riffed out other jokes. She ate so many small plates past my own personal breaking point that I wondered where it all went. She was absolutely different from anyone I had met recently. I was also somewhat convinced that she was completely insane. But I didn't let that get in the way of the fun. I was going to suggest a bar for the after dinner, but she said she didn't drink. It was too late for coffee, and a music club also seemed out. I put the rest of the night in her hands. I'm full. I think I should go home. I admit to being disappointed, but I knew that was probably where we were headed. It was actually later than I thought, so I pointed the car east and was at her front porch in a quick 15 minutes. As we approached the exit, the old nervousness kicked in. My heartbeat filled my ears, and cold sweat ran on my armpits and brow. There would obviously be no heavy action tonight, because she already feared my meaty paws, and she also <laughs> lived with her parents. Still, while I, when I parked in front of her house, I decided to walk her to the door. There was a small step up from the sidewalk in front of the door. She lifted herself onto the bricks and turned to face me. I expected some of the usual platitudes. I had heard many of them. I had said them so many times, but she stopped me. Put those hands behind your back, she said, rotating her right hand. I followed her orders, and instinctively, we both bent at the waist. As our lips met, each pair of hands clasped in a parade rest, and both bodies at an angle. We must have looked like a silhouette cutout from the 1920s. It was sweet to use such a cloying word, and it was definitely old-fashioned. But I felt effervescent and bubbled at the point of contact. She unbent herself first. You call me again, she said, and closed the door on me. I wasn't exactly sure what had happened. I didn't know if I had a girlfriend, but I did know I had fun. I certainly had enough material for my next five minutes, probably the best of my very short career. But why spoil it? Why not just enjoy it? I certainly wasn't disappointed. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, Charlie Brown. Snoopy would be so proud. <laughs> so, I have to do that.
Our next reader will be Sharon Simkraus, and Sharon is in her second year with a fiction concentration. Given a shot at rewriting the past, Sharon wouldn't take it, not even for the painful times, because these times, along with the funny, loving, awkward, thrilling, sad, and happy moments, make a full and colorful life. Plus, one day, they might just make for a great memoir. Sharon would love it if people said behind her back, oh, Sharon Simkraus, yes, I hear she's a New York Times best-selling novelist. <laughs> you may not know that Sharon is a word game aficionado and plays words with friends and scramble with friends on her iPhone while standing in line, watching TV, at stoplights, in the shower, just kidding on the last two, she says. <laughs> wonder. Anyway, introducing Sharon Simkraus. Thank you, Karen. And thank you to everyone for coming to support us tonight. Um, I will be reading a nonfiction essay written in the second person, and it's titled, Do You Remember? Has it been this long? Do you remember when we first met, that wintry day in February when you spotted me sitting on the sofa through the glass window of your corner office and bobbed your head of grayish blonde hair out your office door? I remember looking up from my cup of tea, the collar tag of my new black suit clawing my neck. I was thinking about the 444 Street address of the Mountain View office. Do you know that four is an incredibly unlucky number in Chinese culture and pronounced the same as death in Cantonese? I was thinking of dance and my return to stateside and about the family we left behind after a year of trying to make Singapore our home. I was thinking about the bald trees lining the frosty streets and how I missed the heat and, how, and about how I was going to make it in a valley filled with engineers. Then your whimsy brown eyes and your rich baritone ask, welcome, are you being help? Transform that strange lobby into a cozy fireplace. I didn't know then that you were the big cheese, Mr. Chairman. The receptionist has situated me. The vice presidents, your direct reports, would interview me. You could have stayed in your office and gone about your chairman duties. But instead, you came out to the lobby and said hello. Do you remember my first weeks at work? How I pretended to understand the technical dilations of our clients and how they wanted us to put them on the cover of the red herring? Do you remember telling them? Listen, in advertising, you pay for play. In public relations, you pray for play. <laughs> and do you remember the day you caught me ransacking the windowless library at 8 o'clock at night so I could bring home the latest issues of Computer World, Semiconductor International, and Upside Magazine? You didn't know about my non-technical background. Now I studied so I could figure out ways to speak the language of B2B companies in order to swim in their pool of PDM, EAI, and ERP technologies. <laughs> you said you knew I'll have a promising career ahead. I smiled, but didn't tell you I was missing my family, craving curry puffs and chili crabs, forcing myself to fit in a world where people lived and thrived on computer chips. Do you remember the day you heard about your selection into PR Week's 100 Most Influential People of the Century? You said, what an honor. Then I looked at the list and realized most of these people are dead. <laughs> All your time as one of the fair children of Fairchild Semiconductor during Silicon Valley's pioneering days, 
Do you remember traveling with Steve Jobs for Apple's IPO Roadshow? Or how you co-founded the Band of Angels? And how you became chairman of our public relations firm? You were building such a name for yourself, you were invited to speak everywhere. I was proud to have you as my boss, and thrilled that you made sure I clinked glasses with your contemporaries at places where you spoke, even though back then I didn't quite get all the fuss about Silicon Valley. Do you remember speaking at that famous Churchill Club? You introduced yourself. My name is Fred Hall. Yes, yes, I have a challenging last name. But I tell my four daughters, it helps with character development. <laughs> I remember the crowd, they were even more enamored when you shared your one minute history of Silicon Valley. We live in the fifth decade of the mainframe computer, the fourth decade of the integrated circuit, the third decade of the microprocessor, the second decade of the personal computer, and the first, first decade of the internet. It was during one of your many speeches, as I was seated among hundreds in my now well-worn suit and no longer irritating collar tag, when I realized that what mattered in this job wasn't simply learning about the gigabits and megahertz of technology. What mattered was my understanding of how technology was changing the way people live. And from this realization awakened my new appreciation for the valley and our role in helping to shape the stories of our times. Do you remember the dot-com boom of the late 90s? Of course you do. I remember the glint in your wired brown eyes as you stop a couple of us in the middle of the office hallway. Flanked by two long white walls full of framed newspaper clippings, we stood facing one another. Your body hunched a little to adjust to our heights. And you leaned forward as your pale pinkish wrinkled face came to a tad too close. You probably didn't know that you, as you passed me a thick folder and said, I'd like you to front this dot-com pitch. We were figuring out how to politely brush our faces off spit without alarming you. <laughs> <laughs> and you must remember that record-breaking year and the clients we turned away and the day you called a company-wide meeting and encouraged us to step up recruitment of good public relations professionals. Actually, your exact words were, anyone who has a pulse, Hire them. <laughs> I didn't tell you then that headhunters were calling and staring, into, and staring into so many pairs of ambitious client eyes and telling stories of one too many startups' quest to make small business big had also let the entrepreneurial spark in me. Has it been this long? Do you remember that not so wintry day in March, a couple years after we had first met, when I told you that I was starting my own company? I was afraid you'd think me ungrateful, but you smiled, patted my shoulder, and told me to get out there and make you proud. I was thinking I didn't want to lose your mentorship. And then you agreed to join my company's advisory board and even schedule monthly mentoring lunches with me. So I ventured out there and created a new kind of firm focused on helping Asian-related companies tell stories that resonated with American audiences, technologically, culturally, journalistically. You must remember your reaction when I read it off the names and types of clients who had embraced our business model. You leaned forward, wink, and said, you're onto something, kiddo, and quoted Berkeley professor Annalise Saxanian, Silicon Valley is built on ICs, not integrated circuits, but Indians and Chinese. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember that afternoon at Alpha and I a restaurant in Palo Alto after the dot-com crash? We were poring over the menus when I caught a glimpse of the restaurant's phone number. I was thinking about the last four digits, 3888. Did I ever tell you that three sounds like life and eight sounds like prosper in Cantonese? 
Though it was hard to think about happy things at that time, you must remember I was thinking about the client who fired 90% of the staff as well as my firm. I was thinking of I should be doing the same, soon be doing the same too with my staff. Then I look up from the menu and began wondering why you had your bifocus resting upside down on your broad Irish nose. When you look up from your menu and said, things are looking up. <laughs> Do you remember the day you told me you were ready for the second act of your life and that you had decided to teach? I remember rummaging through boxes for my old marketing and public relations syllabi from college and making copies for your reference as you now develop your own. And then you went off and won the extraordinary faculty award, the highest honor bestowed upon a faculty member at that school. Do you remember that cloudless spring day when we sat across from each other at the outdoor seating area of Streets Cafe when you told me about your diagnosis, that there was no cure? I didn't tell you that at that moment under the direct sunlight, the lines on your forehead and around your mouth seemed deeper and your side parted head of hair seemed bleach white. I was thinking that you should be selfish with your time from now on and said so out loud. You dimpered, ignored me, and continued to live life the only way you knew how, spreading your knowledge, nurturing more friends and mentees the way a gardener tended to his buds. The speaking invitations continued to diluge you. I remember attending a forum you were moderating. I remember the oxygen tank sitting ominously by your side. I remember your labored coughing halfway through the session. You patting your chest as the adventure capitalist speaker next to you passed you his bottled water and a hundred or so attendees looking at you and at one another, speaking concerned with their eyes. You died on January 2nd, 2004, a few weeks after that event. You were 77. There was a beautiful service at St. Albert Catholic Church in Palo Alto. I know you left us, but I like to think that you're still with us, that you know it was a standing room only crowd, that you heard the refrains of Ave Maria and your daughter's eulogy, that you saw the long line waiting to break bread. Did you read the stories and the obituaries about you in the newspapers? Did you hear what the who's who of Silicon Valley said? They said you were like Churchill, that you commanded the room when you entered, that you were a Renaissance man, a family man, a gifted storyteller who captured the people and events of Silicon Valley with great wit and insight. Has it been this long? The other day, a colleague drove me past your old house on Chaucer Street on our way to, work, to a work event. Later, I thought about the first number on her license plate, the number nine. Do you know that nine sounds like Jew, which means a long time in Mandarin? Has it been this long? Thank you. Thank you, Sharon. Uh, Ryan McQuilton is in her second year with a concentration on fiction. If she could retitle Truman Capote's classic, she'd call it Breakfast at Jack in the Box After Missing McDonald's. <laughs> if Ryan could, she would rewrite every time she's ever said, one more shot can't hurt, or I can jump that far. <laughs> you may not know that Ryan once knew how to ride horses standing up on their backs. Ladies and gentlemen, Ryan McQuilton. Thanks, Nairi. <clears throat> uh, I'm going to be reading a short story. Uh, it's fictional. Might one day be part of something longer. Maybe one day. 
My father was an irredeemable bastard. That was the reason my mother left him. He was sitting oblivious on the corduroy couch as she loaded her single suitcase into the back seat of the car they shared. Her high-heeled sandals wobbled in the gravel. I stood by the open front door next to a rack of TV trays, scuffing the toe of my sneaker on the yellow carpet. I took one last look at him in front of the television. His eyes were stuck on the screen like this was any other Sunday afternoon. Like he didn't care that in a minute his wife and nine-year-old daughter would be speeding down I-84 towards Utah without any plans to return. My mother had told me that morning that he didn't want to make a big scene. Right before that was when she sat me down on one of the kitchen stools and said we were leaving. You know your father, she'd said, lips twitching out a cloud of cigarette smoke. Doesn't care nothing for feelings. She told me not to expect him to say goodbye, and all afternoon I'd coached myself for that. But as I stared at the side of his blank face, I felt sick. The feeling was worse than I'd prepared myself for. Sharper even than last year when Tori Rice kneed me in the stomach during freeze tag, and I didn't walk right for a day after that. Maybe mom was right. I was only 50-50 sure on what irredeemable meant, but I had a hunch this might count. Mom came up the front steps, ankles like jelly on her shoes, and sneaked behind the couch to take her purse from the kitchen table. It was buried among bills and half-empty nail polish bottles and a week's worth of KFC tubs stacked between layers of grease. She tiptoed and my father didn't turn around. She had already taken a handful of 20s out of his wallet while he was at work. You know he owes me, Sadie, she'd said. You've seen it. So she left the folded lump of leather on the end table beside the sofa. She slung her bag over her shoulder and took a last glance around the house. It wasn't long before she was moving toward the door, like that was all the time she needed to remember the place we'd lived my whole life. I'd been taking my own last look for the past six hours, and I still didn't feel like I was done. Halfway out the door, she grabbed my hand like an afterthought. Her palm was wet and rough in a way that made me want to twist my wrist away. I stumbled down the porch steps after her, clutching my backpack in one hand. As it knocked heavy against my knees, I turned to look back. I wanted to speak to him, to ask him why he was letting us go, but my throat was all closed up. He laughed low and scratchy at a red-headed woman on the TV screen, and I knew I'd missed my chance. I'd spent the last half hour leaning against the living room wall, trying to follow my mother's advice and stay quiet, and now it was too late. I shut the passenger side door behind me with a crunch and hugged my backpack to my chest. Dad always made me ride in the back, but my mother said that was only because he was a vehicular fascist. She said the same thing every time he found the vodka she kept under the front seat and poured it out in the driveway. Wow. Stretching up tall toward the windshield, I stared at the house through the film of old smoke. I wanted to catch one more peek at him. The TV flickered bluish and dull against the living room window, but the sun was too bright to see in. As my mother dug through her purse for the car keys, I realized with a rush of panic that I hadn't given Dad our new address, the one my mom had recited that morning when I'd asked her how my friends would write me. Number 2521 Yermo Avenue, Salt Lake City, Utah, care of Ted. I didn't know anybody called Ted, but she said he was waiting for us at the end of 84. I was halfway to pulling on the car door handle before I remembered that a bastard wouldn't write letters. My mother glanced up at the house as her search for the keys turned frenzied. I could hear them jingling beneath pill bottles and lipstick tubes and her two emergency Bud Light cans, but she couldn't find them. Finally, she leaned over with a growl and dumped out the bag at my feet. With a triumphant cough, she pulled a set of keys from the pile of junk. She smiled at me as she straightened back up, but her grin was hollow and toothy like the raccoons that conquered our trash cans in summer. A miniature troll doll with matted purple hair and a key ring punched through its ear dangled from her hand, its bare belly smudged with grime. 
She brought the troll to her lips and kissed its plastic cheek like it was precious. I realized this must be what happened to women who lived with men like my father, and I felt a little bit glad that we were getting away. Mom cranked the key in the ignition. The car protested in dry, screeching huffs before the engine turned over and then everything was rumbling. We backed slowly down the driveway, my mother cringing each time the gravel crunched under the tires. I bit my lip and tasted metal, but it was better than crying. The wheels rolled over something louder than rocks. A tin can, maybe, or the rusty bike chain I was supposed to throw away but had forgotten. And the front door of the house squeaked open. My father stood in the frame, frowning and shielding his eyes from the sun like he'd finally decided to pay attention. I hadn't seen my father get up off the couch for anything but work in a long time. Was this finally the moment when his inner beast, as mom called it, would turn violent? She said it was just a matter of time. Time, Sadie, and one good chance. She was frozen, her knuckles white on the wheel. Leaning forward, I squinted at him through the brightness. His frown was more confused than angry. He called out words I couldn't hear inside the car, and frantically I rolled down my window and hung out over the door, the stubby lock digging between my ribs. Maybe he was angry, but maybe he had changed his mind and just wanted to say goodbye. Maybe he wanted us to stay. Where are you two headed, he said. Now I frown too. How could he have forgotten? Salt Lake City. Shut it, said my mother. She snatched at my t-shirt and I tried to pull me back into the car, but I just let the collar tighten around my neck. My father's sluggish black brows bunched over his eyes, then shot up in horror. I could feel my face contorting the same way. He took the porch steps two at a time, shouting, wait. The car lurched backwards with my mother's imprecise pressure on the gas, gravel groaning beneath the tires, but she didn't seem to care about the noise anymore. She let go of my shirt. I could breathe again. But as I watched my father lumbering down the driveway, my lungs wouldn't pull in air. Let her out, Diane, he said, nearing my window. How many of you had today? He reached for the passenger door handle, but the car jerked beyond his reach and out into the street. A motorcycle screeched to avoid us, and we were gone. Thank you, Ryan. Wow. Our fourth reader this evening is Valerie Slider. Valerie is in her first year at MPW exploring both stage and screenwriting and fiction. Valerie would publish Breakfast at the OK Corral because lately she's really been in a Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp place emotionally. <laughs> she wishes people would say, Valerie has completed several marathons and considers physical fitness as much a priority as reality TV shows and naps. <laughs> you may not know that Valerie is going to her 10-year high school reunion tomorrow. The theme is too cool for school and she hasn't a thing to wear. <laughs> Valerie Slider. Thank you, um, and thank you for coming. This is, I'm brand new into the program and I'm really excited to be here and to, to have all of you here. Um, I really enjoy telling stories, so that's what I'm gonna do. Some things and stories I tell are true and some are not. He fell on top of me, heavy and hard, and I yelled at him, hey! And he apologized and he said, oh sorry, oh God, I'm so sorry, I was in the tree and I, and he stopped talking. And I said, for him. And you fell. He climbs trees to think more clearly. He thinks better in leaves and branches. 
he broke his arm and he's apologizing to me for falling and I'm thinking this might be the one. <laughs> this is our meat cute and, and he might just be the one of my life because he fell out of a tree, smells like fabric softener and coffee and black sharpie ink and me. <laughs> and I think he's beautiful lying on summer green grass in front of me with that long hairy broken arm. I made him up. No, I didn't. <laughs> Does it matter? I've already told you that story. I remember because I was sitting on a different branch in this tree and it was raining. I remember where I tell stories. You don't remember? The thing that I broke. I don't want to say it, to say what it was, but you know, this thing that I broke. In here, under my ribs. I ripped it up in half with my hands 10 years ago, five years ago at a party before anyone else could. At a party over dead grass in a canopy bed in a pool when someone new swam around me like a shark. He swam wrong though, this someone else. He swam in the opposite direction. It was never gonna work. I don't wanna talk about it. The pool of my youth was a perfect round circle and I was perfect in it. I swam fast enough around the edge that I made a whirlpool. Then I grew up. No, he did. We did it together at exactly the same time. As soon as someone else started swimming with me in the right direction, it was all over. I was pulled down under into the whirlpool we made. Swimming together, we just went too fast. That's the truth. I'm a shark in the dark in a pool in a canopy bed. No, I'm not. I'm right here. What can I say I was lonely? What can I say he kept me company? I made him up, yes. But I did, but does that, that doesn't mean that I didn't know him. Maybe because I made him up, maybe I know him better than I know you. Maybe he's mine, my character, my imaginary man. I can tell you his entire life story, but I can't tell you yours. I'm gonna finish his story. The first day we met, the day that he fell on me, he's lying there in green summer grass and so am I, and as I lay lying, I remember that in another life, I was a Girl Scout. Daisy Brownie, junior cadet, senior ambassador. I set his broken arm with tree branches and strips of my torn sweater and his torn sweater. And all of a sudden, with this beautiful man's arm in my hands, I become Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. I'm in a prairie skirt, I have an accent. Because of this skirt, I'm not me anymore. I'm Dr. Quinn, medicine woman. Dr. Quinn, Daisy Brownie, junior cadet, senior ambassador, woman. He looks up at me with blue eyes, black eyelashes, and I, and I say to him with an accent, what's your name? And he says, Sam, Robert, Andy, Jason, Seth, Sam. And I say, I'm Dr. Quinn. I'm a medicine woman. <laughs> I used to be a Girl Scout. And he tells me he's so glad that he fell on me. And I tell him, I'm glad too, because I think maybe I've been waiting for him to fall on me forever. And he says, I'm sorry that I'm not real. I'm sorry too, I say, but at that moment, I'm not real either, so we can both not exist together until your bone heals. So we do that. 
But I've done too good a job and the bone is healing inside his skin before I can find out everything I need to know about him. And I don't think I'm ready to be real again yet. Not yet. So while he's telling me a story about the first time he fell before he fell on me, I stand up. I put one foot on his arm on the thick, meaty part next to his elbow. I grab his wrist with my hand and I pull up and then I come down hard with my foot and I break that broken arm again. <laughs> because we're just not ready to be real yet. Not yet. But eventually we were. We healed. His broken arm crooked and my ripped up heart crooked. And at the same time, we were both ready to be real. <coughs> but maybe it was only me. He just looked so ready, and sometimes I thought he looked so much like me. One day he looked at me from another tree, one that used to grow over there, there where the grass never grew and there where the grass never died, and told me it was over between us. Do you remember that tree? It never grew an apple that didn't have a worm inside of it, and it was cut down years ago and we just couldn't take it anymore. That tree looked so much like this tree. I made him up, but that doesn't mean I wasn't relieved when he climbed out of that rotten apple tree or that I didn't sigh into my own branches and say quietly as he walked away from me, let's stay friends. Let me climb out of this tree so you can look me in the eye, so you can see that I'm telling the truth this time, so that I can tell you that he was someone I knew. I can show you where the pool is. It's dry now, it's full of dead leaves. I'm sorry that we can't go swimming, but the reality is that keeping all that water around was just too much of a liability. I'll tell you the truth. The water made me a little sad, too. Honestly, I hardly ever swim anymore. Thank you. Thank you, Valerie. Um, in Santa Barbara, there were a whole group of people that used to climb trees and sit in them because they thought better in the trees. <laughs> that reminded me of that. All right, so our final student reader of tonight is Autumn McAlpin. Autumn is one month into the program with a focus on screenwriting. Her rewrite of Faulkner would be, as I lay crying while my alarm goes off, I wonder why all these little people I co-created somehow think their arrival on earth included breakfast at my place every stinking day. <laughs> Autumn would just love people to say that her guilty pleasure is not eating an entire pint of Ben and Jerry's oatmeal cookie crunch in her husband's gym clothes while watching Hugh Grant movies at 3 a.m. <laughs> and you may not know that from the foggy cloud Autumn remembers as the childbearing years, she emerged as a mother of four with a humor column called Cracking Up that runs weekly in the parenting section of the Orange County Register. Autumn McAlpin. Hello. I'm sorry, I did not bring humor tonight, but I brought um, fiction because I changed the names. <laughs> this is called The Hollowing. Perhaps it's the memory alone of last week's surprise organ removal that has leveled me to the chocolate velour of my couch, I consider, self-diagnosing this exceptionally pathetic recovery. Female, 30, scheduled C-section, against mother's wishes, claims out-of-body experience. Note, possible psychosis? Does the psych ward even have a nursery I contemplate? And if so, would its decor forcibly be winter white? A knock at the door interrupts my bleak prognosis. Like a hummingbird, she pecks, soft, aggressive rounds of bat, bat, bat. 
Since when has she knocked? When they convince you of the need for a hacksaw to extract your baby, in their cell, they tend to focus on the baby. The baby is just too large. Of course you want what's best for the baby, but the baby will be just fine. To entice you to sign the paper, there are a few things they leave out. The shot of acid reduction sewage you must swig without barfing up to pass into the OR. The popsicle of a metal table you will most definitely feel when they splay your numb limbs across it. And the unlikely yet quite possible need for temporary organ displacement. I raise my head 18 inches from a painfully perky pillow, its linen weave now etched into my cheek. Part of me is too weak to get the door, the other just not strong enough to face what's on the other side. Through the window she waves, holding up a Marie Callender's pie box with a, this will solve everything, grin. She sees my floppy wave and charges in, the gusto of her entrance habitually grand. She travels through life with an entourage of moods, exuberance, fury, despair, and her favorite, the funk, as in, I'm in one. It is the funk that worries me most. The funk often lingers behind after she goes. The funk is with her right now. As she approaches, I feel the seasickness in her gait, the way she teeters side to side as she slowly advances, the same gait as her mother's. In a fuzzy sweater of her brocade print dress, her frazzled auburn hair tethered back into a scrunchie, she looks like she just stepped off a page of a Mary Inglebright calendar. February, maybe. She plunks the pie down, box down on the counter. It slid sloppily untucked. It hits lopsided. She's already started her medication. Lemon meringue for the days she almost gets fired. Chocolate cream to check out during Christmas. Peach when swimsuit season rolls along anyway. Today, it's boysenberry, the pie of the month for late mortgage situations. I hate pie. The flimsy blue curtain they yanked across the wire may have blocked the view, but I felt it. I felt my bladder extraction as they placed it in a timeout like a toddler. What else barricaded their path to the uterus? A spleen, my large intestine? It felt like they took it all, hollowed me out. They promised they put it all back, but I think in the wrong places. After the hollowing, the body on the gurney began trembling. From the fluorescent haze where I hovered, I saw myself gasp, my lips go white. I saw the attending physician shoot the anesthesiologist's worried eyes in order, put her out. How fully did I die? I survey the view from my couch. A jar of peanut butter rests in a houseplant. His flowers were picked clean by my two-year-old before a neighbor stopped by. I asked her to take the two-year-old but to leave the GIF. My mom will be here any minute. As if that meant what it should. My mom passes through the squalor towards me, brushes a pile of Pixar DVDs to the side, and sinks into the couch. Face to face, I see just how hard it's raining in her world today, so I know she can't really see me and how I am and why she's actually here. It's too bad. She would have appreciated it. Normally, my life is too put together for her tastes. She plunks her swollen cankles on the ottoman and digs into a second piece, this time on a plate. After 15 minutes facing the big screen, she's had enough golden crust and infomercial promise to summon her buddy, Exuberance. They met on her high school cheerleading squad and occasionally reunite over food. Exuberance prods her to ask about my neighbor's for sale sign, to notice last month's pedicure, to become genuinely giddy for game show winners. She leans forward and glimmers with a prophetic grin. I think I finally found my place. AA. She sparkles, <laughs> knowing it's just too good. Mom, you don't drink, I say. Neither do they, she shrugs. <laughs> she's the daughter of a raging alcoholic, and she's a Mormon. She's never even tried Kahlua pie. 
Yet it neither surprises me that she's gone to AA or that she's established her new future at one. But I stick to my lines. Why would you go to an AA meeting? I ask, watching her lick her fork. Did I mention I hate pie? Yeah. Training. Learning the 12 steps helps us better understand our clients' needs. These are my people. There's no judgment, no pride, just love and support. Her pom-poms shake their happy dust toward my side of the sectional. A licensed clinical social worker, she's an untamed disaster to her superiors, but wildly popular with her clients. She's one of those whose life has a way of making others feel better about their own. <laughs> I'm watching her wipe the purple syrup off her plate with her index finger and suck it clean when the monitor crackles, reminding me someone else around here really needs to start drinking. Do you, do you want me to get her, she asks. I stare back, taking this in. She knows I hate pie. Um, I'm still having a hard time walking, I say quietly. Three babies before this one, all natural, and I'd been back to business after three hours. Damn organ removal. The sight of the stairs triggers despair. Together they sigh, can we do this? She heaves herself off the couch and rock walks toward the stairs. Do I walk like that? Michael would have brought her down earlier, but the kids were loud getting off to school, I apologize. Last night, when I collapsed at the annual family spectacular, I couldn't break tradition and not host, she stood up and announced she'd be taking a two-week sabbatical, promising she'd be here every day to help me. So why am I consumed with guilt that she now has to lift her legs 16 times so her granddaughter can eat? That I don't have Marie Callender herself over in the kitchen whipping up a fresh banana cream? <laughs> My mom's role as founder and director of the Warped World of Martyrdom is justified. <laughs> On her resume of pain, anyone would concede she's earned her stripes. Abusive childhood, parents' divorce, adultery, and abandonment from her own husband that ripped her precious religion out of most of her eight kids. Apartment living while my father owns four vacation homes and a yacht. She deserves all her sighs and sadness and moody, invisible friends. I watch as with each step of her descent, she kisses my precious baby's creamy forehead. For a moment, I let go and let myself love her. She reluctantly hands my daughter to me and I pull her in to nurse, but I'm forced to two-time this innocence as now, empty-handed, my mom suckles me back into her space with a drained sigh. The thing is, she starts, her favorite three words. The preamble to all her declamations, the thing is, will either be followed by A, since the divorce, B, when your dad left, or C, as a single mom. <laughs> but the real answer is always D, all of the above, and I've earned every morsel of this moment, so let me have it. She hands me a slice of pie, and I'm eating it. She pounds into her defense of the time we stood luggage in hands and watched our cruise ship sail away late because of one of her episodes. The years she spent locked in her closet as I mastered the art of permission slip forgery. I feel the dark cluttered family room I'd find her in on early winter evenings watching Roseanne, which somehow resembled a happier world than ours. Was my dad the cause or the effect? Hours later, she's still going as dusk settles in. My three oldest are all next door racking up IOUs. My baby purrs in my arm, eyelids fluttering. My mom doesn't get up to turn on the lamps. I can't. That's why I need this time to take off work and get my life together. I need to lose weight, start walking. She croaks out a plan, wiping tears off a fresh rosacea flare. I sit up, bracing my scar. You're right, mom. Now is your time. You've got two weeks off. I won't tell anyone you're not here. Just get up and start walking now, I say. <laughs> Introducing my lifelong friend, Resolve. The same Resolve that has kept me operating in full throttle as her caregiver up until I kind of died last week. 
I can't just leave you here, she sobs, for the first time noticing my robe, my greasy ponytail, me. She doesn't know that besides the pie, I've yet to eat today because I can't have her be my crutch to the kitchen. If I'm leaning on her, we'll both collapse. I'm so fine, I say, because I know I will be. I want to, no, I have to get back up to hosting spectaculars and turning on the lamps and not eating pie. I know I'll get up at some point, but to make it to tomorrow, I just need her to. Thank you. Thank you, Autumn. Our final reader this evening is our MPW faculty member, Dinah Lenny. Dinah holds a Bachelor of Arts from Yale and a Master of Fine Arts degree from the Bennington Writing Seminars. She's a co-author of Acting for Young Actors and the author of the memoir, Bigger Than Life. Her memoir was published in the American Live series at the University of Nebraska Press and excerpted for the Lives column in the New York Times Magazine. Her essays and reviews have appeared in the LA Times, the Washington Post, Plowshares, Agni, Creative Nonfiction, and the Los Angeles Review of Books, to name a few. And she received special mention in the 2010 Pushcart Anthology for a work in the Waterstone Review. Dinah would rewrite the classics into a mega-classic mashup entitled, As I Lay Dying at Tiffany's. <laughs> what a way to go. <laughs> Something untrue that she would love people to say about her is, that Dinah Lenny, she's so mysterious. <laughs> you may not know that, alas, Dinah is an open book. Ladies and gentlemen, Dinah Lenny. I really have to give my husband credit for the, the uh, Mad Lib. Really, I mean, didn't you really come up with that? That wasn't me, was it? I, maybe it was a collaboration. Um, th thank you all for coming. Thank you so much to Nairi and Karen. It has, it, what a pleasure to hear um, Charlie and Sharon and Ryan and Valerie. Where's Valerie? That was fun and it was so much fun. And Autumn. Um, Autumn and Charlie are in my core class, which is, uh, so that was uh, really nice. And, and Sharon, were you, where's Sharon? Were you in core with me or just memoir? Memoir. Nonfiction. Non yeah, uh, memoir. Essay. Something. Anyway. Um, I remember that piece. It was lovely. Th so anyway, it's nice to see you all. Thank you all for coming. I've been working on a, um, a project um, that is uh, t titled right now anyway, The Object Parade. I hope, I hope it stays. Um, where I'm sort of uh, working off of objects. So if I were, you know, when I was trying to sort of um, figure out how I was going to work this into the theme tonight, I sort of thought, well, as I, as I lay thinking about my relationships with my furniture, um, you know, um, or, or, you know, my, w w whatever belonging I happen to be sort of riffing about. Um, and I'm going to read you three tonight. Two are short, two shorts. The one in the middle is sort of medium-sized. Um, and this is the order that they fall in the big project, but, but there's lots of stuff in between. So um, hopefully they stand by themselves. So the first one is called Stick Kite. Say, little girl, I dream of you, you then, you now, 
You as you are coming into my room to ask, can you go through my closet, rummage in my drawers and jewelry boxes? Might you borrow that sweater? Can you have this ring? And the copy of Anna Karenina over there on the shelf, you want that too. And by the way, you ask on your way out with the sweater and the ring, not the book. You can't have the book. <laughs> Is that me or you in the photo there? I look up from whatever I'm doing. Which photo do you mean? That one. 10 by 14, framed on the wall, sepia-toned. The one of the beautiful child in the wide-brimmed hat, lit from underneath. Is it you or me, you ask again? Why, it's you, darling. Of course it is. You thought so, you say. You were confused, having to do with a snapshot upstairs. The old 3 by 5 in the bookshelves. And yes, you're right. That is I, no question. I'm the kid in the cowboy hat. Though how do I know? It's not as if I remember wearing it. But this likeness, this little girl, I animate this moment and her, you that is, you in your life, taking on the camera, looking straight into the lens. You don't remember how you dressed as a witch, though you planned to be a cat, abandoned whiskers at the last minute for a sheet, the sheet then abandoned for conical headgear. <laughs> Maybe now, now that I've told you, you recall something of the night, the shrieks and whoops, the jack-o'-lantern whose nose you designed with a sharpie for me to carve. Maybe you remember peering into a strange living room from somebody's stoop while I waited on the sidewalk. I bet you do. But I remember the flash of the bulb and the street we were on, the laughter out of nowhere, the rustle of the wind in the trees, and kids running, swirling this way and that as if blown with the leaves. The last night of October it was. Which year? Were you seven? Were you eight? And the air in Los Angeles suddenly nippy. I can hear you refusing to put on a sweater, face flushed, warm fingers wrapped around mine. I'm not cold, you said. So how to insist? And afterwards, how you sat on the floor with an old pillowcase full of candy and how we bartered, you and I. How you couldn't be bribed or dissuaded from keeping the Kit Kats and the plain M&Ms. But you would remember which varieties you liked best. Whereas I remember you. I know the feel of your arms around my neck, the smell of chocolate on your breath. I'm the one that can tell you how it was, how you were. Just ask. Ask about the first time you laughed. How you looked when you didn't want to cry. How long it took you to fall asleep. It's I who remember the sound of you singing to yourself when you didn't know I was listening. And I, not you I'm guessing, can summon your tiny self running far out on the flats at low tide on Thumpertown Beach with a wand in your hand, a stick kite, the streamers, all colors, flying out behind you. Do you remember that day, that toy? Maybe you do. But that moment, that moment in your life, I claim that one too, as if it belonged to me. So uh, this one's the longer one. <laughs> and it's called Breakfront, as I lay thinking about the furniture. It arrived in four pieces, which word pieces doesn't do the job. It arrived in four, four what? Four parts, four boxes, each one wider and heavier than I, than either of us. It was just us back then, just Fred and me in our new house, our first house, our first and our last, could that be? The one in which we'd all grow up, not just the kids. The one in which we too will get old along with the dogs. This house, this one which, having expanded like an accordion, has now contracted again, is now as it was then, just the right size for us and this dog, the last dog. We tell ourselves she's the last, though neither of us believes it, not really. The point is, 
The point is, it came in four boxes. Who knew they made boxes that big and how did we even get them in the front door? We didn't. We couldn't have. It must have been the moving men, three of them, who hoisted the boxes from their truck, heaved them inside, left them in the middle of the room and drove away. In this house, see, there's no foyer, no mudroom, no front or back hall. Open the door, step inside, soft shoot to your right and you're sitting on the arm of the sofa. <laughs> and why do I go on about the floor plan, the choreography? Because you need to be able to see the room taken over by four enormous boxes. <laughs> Who needs an elephant, right? And no pretending in this case that we didn't have an elephant, but what were we going to do about it? Let me say that I knew right away we weren't keeping it. Disassembled to fit in four boxes, it would never fit in this house. <laughs> it had once lived in my grandmother's dining room in the Grand Old Tudor in Teaneck, New Jersey, one of those houses set back from the street on a manicured lawn. There was a willow tree at the far end of the driveway and a huge rhododendron out front and inside landings, corridors, banisters, moldings, whereas we, proud new owners of a low-slung Spanish bungalow on the east side of Los Angeles, what were we to do with a break front packed up and sent by my mother not long after my grandmother's death? And why did we call it a break front anyway? It wasn't one, really. No requisite protruding center section when all put together. What is it? I asked my mother on the telephone just the other day. I persist as if it still matters, as if with the right name it might finally shift into proper focus and place. What is it called? Well, shelves, she says. Bookshelves or a china cabinet. Not a break front, no, not strictly speaking. A credenza, I've now decided, having Googled, having perused the images. That's what it is, though the name alters nothing, and though it feels strange, almost traitorous, to call it anything other than what it's always been called. Such a monstrous piece of furniture, part of a dining room set that belonged to my grandmother's mother, with which, therefore, though she didn't want it for herself, my mother was unwilling to part. <laughs> As timing would have it, it arrived a scant week before the madame herself was due to visit. The madame. This is what my stepfather affectionately calls my mother. A designer by trade, a self-described aficionado of culture, art, taste. When I called to tell her, Mom, I'm selling it, it won't fit, not ever, it won't, she answered, just wait, I'm coming. <laughs> and when I said, Mom, I really don't want this thing, it has nothing to do with who I am, she said, Dinah? I'll be there in just a few days. <laughs> so, did we take the pieces out of the boxes? Rather, did we cut the packing away so as to have a real look? We must have, which had to have been how I knew I didn't want it. Its bases, dark stained American black walnut, very rare, my mother tells me just the other day, and ornately carved with angry little skulls for knobs. <laughs> and the shelves set behind beveled glass, five of them in each case, and each case over five feet tall, meant to stand on top of those heavy bottoms which came up to my waist, understand, and which, when pushed together, called for a room twice as big as any in our house, and not a wall higher wide enough to be had. But even if there were, I didn't want it. I'd never have chosen it, grand and grown up as it was, and why did I have to wait for my mother to confirm that that was so? <laughs> why, oh why, had she sent it to me? I'd have been so pleased to inherit one of Grandma's nice Chinese terrines or a pair of silver candlesticks. Who'd ever want a break front? <laughs> the madame, my mother that is, arrived on a Friday afternoon with time enough to take a nap before the opening of Blame It on the Movies. 
a musical review in which I was appearing in a tiny theater on Santa Monica Boulevard, a triumph of an evening, and afterward a party on the stage with smoked salmon and new potatoes halved and adorned with creme fraiche and fake caviar and champagne toasts, of course, and much lavish gvelling, never said a casting director whom I only slightly knew, gripping both my hands in his, batting his lashes over time. Never have I been so excited about an actor, not since yada yada, on and on he went about my performance. In Blame It on the Movies, in which I sang and sort of danced. And I am proud to say, hula hooped my way through an entire musical number. Not that I can tell you why or what it was called. And this praise, effusive as it was, delivered in front of my mother. <laughs> and so, when we arrived home after midnight and flopped down in our respective chairs on opposite sides of the room with the break front in pieces between us so that we had to crane our necks to have a conversation, when she got suddenly quiet, bit her lower lip, the way she does, and squinted in my general direction, well, she had something to tell me, clearly, and I, leaning out on the edge of my seat to catch her eye, her gaze, was eager to hear what it was because I supposed, what did I suppose? That she finally recognized and appreciated the range and significance of my natural gifts? <laughs> what are you thinking, Mom? I asked. A pause. A pause as big as a packing box. She did that thing she does with her mouth when she's delighted with herself. Lips push forward into a smile, no teeth. A good indication that she's several steps ahead of us all. I'm thinking, she said, about the furniture. <laughs> Convince me, if you can, that all this isn't about a woman who, though there is a continent between them, cannot get out from under her mother. <laughs> Tell me, can you, that I shouldn't have understood whatever talent I possess notwithstanding, that my mother wasn't wrong to be skeptical about the wisdom of my presumed vocation, that I shouldn't have anticipated that the person I'd grow up to be would have to improvise straight through middle age, never mind the furniture, though it's true that the break front turns out to be a metaphor and elastic as such, not just solid and defining of the literal and figurative interior, but a reminder that it behooves us all to reframe and reinvent whenever we can. Dinah, good design is not about buying new things, my mother said that night when I snorted or gasped or rolled my eyes. Not so much as a word about my having mastered a time step. And what about those lovely canapes? And how about the standing ovation? <laughs> good design, she continued, is about making use of heirlooms. As if we hadn't, both of us just spent the evening in the theater. Well, I really believe that, she muses on the phone when I quote from way back when. But do you remember that night, I ask? Of course I do, she says, evidently tickled. I am very creative, she adds. <laughs> and both of us laugh. Sometimes, often in fact, this woman inside the receiver sounds just like my mother. Though I'm embarrassed to admit, it has only recently occurred to me that it's I who am guilty of conjuring her and not the other way around. She isn't the person I've yearned for and imagined. Why should she be? She is rather her singular self, and in spite of my projecting and endowing and wanting and needing and expecting her to conform to my version of her, how unfair have I, I have been when all along she has rightfully had an inner life and a script all her own. Now, talking about the breakfront hurdles are back. 
She is telling me about visiting her grandmother in a cavernous apartment on West End Avenue, how in childhood she was abandoned there for a whole afternoon and evening, put to sleep in a maid's room, and woke up in the dark and was frightened, young and small as she was, and why on earth had they left her there, and where was her grandmother? Well, she sighs, she probably didn't like children any more than my own mother did. We moved the brake front into place that night. My mother directed us, Fred and me, and we grunted and strained and humped it across the room, first the bases to either side of the fireplace where they're hardly noticeable as, the, as if they've always been there. And the shelves, we pushed them up against the opposite wall, though not before we turned them over as instructed and with my mother excitedly hovering so they'd be self-standing. For years, for 25 years, I've intended to stain the bottoms, which narrow as they are made better tops, have been the tops for 25 years. <laughs> as if this were about, about me and my intentions, as if I don't turn out to be a supporting player in this story and not the star at all. See, tall as the shelves are, you'd have to get on your toes to discover that the wood isn't finished. You'd have to know your furniture to realize that they're balanced on their heads or to notice that the brass keyholes in the Tattersall doors are actually upside down. I mean to say, someone would have to alert you to my living room set as standalone, as a showpiece in a former life. But you'd need only a hint or two to figure out how to put it together again. To have taken it apart, to have given it a second act around which all kinds of drama, more and less predictable, continues to unfold, you'd be some kind of brilliant. <laughs> okay, so this is the last one, um, and, and this is, uh, you know, I, I don't quite lie dying in this piece, but if I were to lie dying and then to be altogether dead, then this is... <laughs> This is a, a, about that. So, instructions as if. If I were brave, if I could commit to anything, I'd say scatter me in Elysian Park. You don't want me to take you to Nantucket, Fred asks. And this is absurd. This is the sort of thing that puts me in a fury. As if I have any connection to Nantucket, as if he does. That's not just the road not taken. That road and that destination were never remotely in the offing, not for a minute. Nantucket, I say, Nantucket, why? Because we spent New Year's Eve on that island three decades ago? Because show off that I was, I stripped down under frigid skies and ran into the ocean that last gray day of December? Because my toes froze on the bike ride back to the inn where he bought me a toddy in the bar, then took my feet into his lap and massaged them back to life? Because that night in the restaurant, bathed, fragrant, swathed in velvet, I went and won better, lifted the long starch cloth that draped our corner table, this between the oysters and the entrees, and went down on my knees under there as if for a lost fork. Because we couldn't have known we were starting our lives together. That's the reason, according to him, such a romantic. Implicit, of course, that I would choose to spend the rest of my life on Nantucket, or, or not my life, my what? My, my. As if eternity, as well as the other coast, belongs to me. As if. Puts a spot on the absurdity of choosing a location. Unless I do it for his pleasure and convenience, which, which brings me back to where I started, right? Were I able to summon the courage of my convictions to actually entertain the idea of my demise, I'd shrug away exotic locales. I'd insist, or at least surrender, to spending the rest of time, 
not my days exactly, but time itself, in the park not a quarter mile east where we've walked our dogs for 25 years, assuming that is that he stays in this house on this street in this town. And absurdity aside, the absurdity of dictating his choice, he will put me where he pleases, what about the pretension? <laughs> as if to impress whom? Each other? As if to fulfill some fantasy scenario too much too late? As if I'd have the nerve to tell him to trek for my sake to Paris, London, or Rome, to the mountains of New Hampshire, to the Cape, the Bayside, naturally, to Manhattan. And yet, Manhattan, isn't that where I belong? Bosh, tell the truth, why don't you, as if you ever once came up out of the subway and knew where you were. <laughs> and yet, for the longest time I kept one of those pins in the bottom of my pencil jar the size of a sil silver dollar, white with red letters, Broadway, I'll be back, it read, as if all over again. What did I think, that the kids would grow up and I wouldn't? That we'd return to New York and be whom? Not ourselves. We ourselves happen to live just over the rise from Dodger Stadium on the other side of Elysian Park. A lesion. We who don't believe in that shit, perhaps <laughs> because we don't believe in that shit, aren't paying attention, are we? But come on now, we're looking to rest in a better place? <laughs> no better place. Still, I'm one to keep my options open, as if when I've been reduced to ash, when the dregs of me are rattling around in the bottom of a canister, I'll have options. <laughs> I'll tell you what, love. You go first. I'll shuttle you, shuttle you wherever you please. Though how to abandon you there? Don't you want me to visit you? When the only heaven we'll ever actually know is here, and us foolishly planning, planning, squinting into the smog, as if there were something above and beyond. Thanks, you guys. Wow, thank you, Dinah. That's our Dinah Lenning, one of our <laughs> teachers. Those of you who don't know about USC. Okay. So that concludes our reading for the evening, and you are invited to join us at our next reading. Next month is going to be Friday, October 26th, and that's at the Barnes & Noble in Santa Monica, the Santa Monica one. And our faculty reader will be Michael Price, and the theme for that month will be interview with the fill in the blank. <laughs> so once again, thanks to all our readers. Um, thank you to Dinah again. Thank you to the staff of Skylight, wherever you are. Mary, Dan, Joe, always supporting us. Um, Damon, who's recording it, again, we'll post a link when the, um, uh, the reading is up. And everyone for coming. Have a great night. Thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.